You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. I'm your host, Tony Lopes, and with me today is Sarah Ford, the founder of Ranch Road Boots. Hey, Sarah, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks. Thanks for making the time to meet with us. As you can hear, Sarah is on the phone calling us from Palm Springs. Beautiful weather out there, I would imagine. Sunny, beautiful day. Sarah, you founded Ranch Road Boots in 2012 with the $60,000 that you had saved from previous jobs. Why don't you tell us how you got started with Ranch Road Boots and what inspired you to start the company? I will. I would love to talk about that. So to be clear, you know, the 60000 was not directly, it was, it was, I think like most entrepreneurs, you kind of have to live off that too. Um, so I was that that sort of provided what you know the the loss of income from quitting my day job that sort of provided the day to day living expenses for me. And Ranch Road, in its in its original form, we were not selling in stock um, boots. We were selling custom boots. So I didn't have the need for a bunch of inventory, um, which was a nice way to learn about the shoe business. Uh, today, we look like a very, very different company. We have the same name, but it's a very different company as what I originally started. But without having a lot of startup capital, um, that's what I had to do. Now, you said that the company looks a bit different. Can you explain to us how it's evolved from 2012 to now and the eight years that you've been running Ranch Road Boots? Yes. Originally, I was trying to kind of be the Nike ID of cowboy boots. And Nike ID at the time was where you could go on the Nike's website, design your own sneakers. The designs would live on the website and other people could buy them. So it was kind of a crowdsource shoe design mechanism. I had, I thought that I could do something similar with Western cowboy boots and that that really, my, you know, instead of a whole business plan at the beginning, I just decided to try to sell 50 pair of boots. And that would mean a lot on the back end. That would mean that I'd have a supplier and that I would have a way to have customers. And um, from the beginning, I, you know, kept it very professional from like an accounting standpoint and a business standpoint. So I went through all the, the steps to treat it like, you know, the very real business it was to me. But we, what I originally started out doing and what we look like today are like polar opposites because we don't sell custom boots now. We carry in-stock boots, um, so we ship them to people much more like an e-commerce business than when I originally started. And have you found that to be a better outlet and a better way to generate revenue for your organization than your original method? Or you know, did you prefer the original method but kind of had to change into more of an e-commerce model? change because there aren't enough custom bootmakers and um, really I think of custom bootmakers today as artists and you you buy individual works of art from the artists and it's not a very scalable business plan because of the supply part of the equation so um, so really we had to do in stock boots because you know there's just not enough 
living boot makers today um, to keep, you know, that's why people have two-year wait lists at a lot of custom boot shops. Right. That makes sense. And so you talked about scalability. Was that one of the things you focused on from early on? Yes. And um, a thing that I think about today is uh, scalability with the current team and what, you know, at what point do you have to add new new people? Um, we try to stay very lean at, at, you know, in the early stages of the business and outsource as much as possible. Um, and so I for very much have that mindset, but um, we also want to be prepared for these you know, super lucky moments where all of a sudden sales could take off or things that are out of your control and be prepared for that too. So I always think of in terms of is our factory capable of scaling? Is our, uh, you know, is our logistics system capable of scaling? Is our sales platform capable of scaling? Um, to, to be prepared for, for overnight success, which typically doesn't happen, but if it does, you want to be ready for it. In that instance, what is your game plan? If you do sort of go viral, so to speak, or you, you know, boom, and all of a sudden you're, you're doubling your revenue from one month to the next. What's your game plan to react to that? Um, you know, I am kind of wrestling with this right now. If you have a moment where a celebrity is seen in your boots and it just catches on overnight, say, that, that typically doesn't happen, but if it does, and it's not unheard of for happening, and we're, we're for sure, um, you know, working on moments like that to happen, I'm kind of torn today on whether to do pre-orders and to have people on wait lists or uh, just take email addresses and say, we'll notify you when we've got it in stock and then you can buy it. And honestly, I don't have... Um, I, right now, we just do the email version, but a part of me, you know, wants to go ahead and make the sale and then to deliver the product on the back end. Um, it's but it's a much bigger headache, and it can turn into a customer service nightmare if your expectations as a consumer doesn't match with the timeline that the company's promising. So um, I've had experience with it in the past, and we've handled it, but it is like a much bigger headache for the company and for the consumer, really. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, it's obvious to me, at least, that you spend a lot of time thinking about what your target audience is focused on and what they want to see from Branch Road Boots. So do you iterate some process that gets you customer feedback aside from your reviews? I I see on your website, you have 368 reviews. 341 of that is five-star reviews. So you're doing very, very, very well. Obviously, you're delivering on in terms of quality and people must be happy with the service as well. But is there another way that you're making sure that you're meeting your customers' expectations? Yeah, I would say the two, there are, I think we have two one-star reviews in their accident, but <laughs> I can't change it. So if you read the review, it doesn't match the one-star. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> so anyway... Um, yeah, and those are all legitimate reviews. They're, you know, not my mom leaving them. Um, but, but yeah, we we are um, we don't. So our customer service email, you people tell you what they want. Um, we don't sell, for example, a wide option like a 4E or a 3E because it would just require a whole lot more money invested in inventory. But um, uh, you know, wide calves and wide feet are probably our most common requested thing. And so if we were to introduce something, like if we have a boot that we're, we're 
it's an evergreen boot. We're going to keep it forever and really double down on it. You, we would go into whips, and that's just based off customer feedback. Um, so also with with fashion, I mean, we're functional, but we're very much uh, – we have an eye towards an aesthetic towards fashion as well. And you, you see what um, people are gravitating towards in centers like fashion centers like L.A., Paris, New York. And, and really, it's fun to see how men and women are that are non-traditional boot wearers are styling our, you know, our styling cowboy boots, and and can you react to that a little bit too? We want to keep with clean classic designs, but at the same time, we want to sprinkle into each collection um, something that's interesting and fun for people that are very fashion focused as well. Right, that makes sense. And I am looking at your boots right now as we speak on the phone uh, on this podcast, and they are gorgeous. They look stunning. Now, you modeled this sort of based on or at least inspired by your grandfather, Daddy Tom. Can you tell us a little bit about Daddy Tom and how he led to the inspiration for these boots? I was the, my dad was the youngest of four kids of Daddy Tom and Mama Julie. And then I was the youngest of like all the grandkids. And growing up in San Angelo, Texas, in the late 70s and 80s, I had the unique opportunity to have a grandfather that at that time he had retired. He finished his work as a cowboy. Then they moved the family to San Angelo and he went to work for the water department. And he, that's where he ultimately retired from. But he was by and large retired and like watching Gunsmoke and sitting on, you know, his lazy boy. <laughs> he worked out every morning. But I I got to hang out with him, at, you know, at a young age for me. And I, like, I won the... Like let's see, twenty. Trying to remember the year he died, but I was I was young. All through my formative years, I got to hang out with Daddy Tom, and he was like hilarious to me, and always fun, and always you know up for a joke or to you know, to go buy me candy or whatever I wanted, basically. And he didn't have a lot of money, but whatever he had, he was happy to just give it away. So, um, Daddy Tom was just always a a nice. Like, I was a pretty intense kid as far as school and everything and physical fitness and all that. Um, my father was as well. And so Daddy Tom was always, like, for me, he was always a source of just kind of fun, uh, which was nice. And so he, he also was a, a very legitimate cowboy that broke horses for a living before he read water meters. And, and he was very good working with horses. And so um, he loved, even after that time of his life, he always loved to have a nice pair of boots and starched shirt and starched jeans or starched jeans or slacks and a really nice hat. And that was always like, that was his uniform. So he, he kind of put in a, put in me at an early age of love for a nice pair of cowboy boots and the respect for them as well. Oh, that's incredible. And so his giving nature, I guess, is in part why you've chosen to give back to the Injured Marine Semper Fi Fund. I know you served, and you're a Marine Corps veteran, you served two tours in Iraq and one in Afghanistan. First and foremost, thank you so much for your service. That's an incredible sacrifice that you've made for our freedoms, and we greatly appreciate that. But was that in part, was Daddy Tom's sort of giving nature, as you said, part of the reason that you give back to the injured Marine Semper Fi Fund? Well, thank you. 
um, I was, you know, it's probably my parents' example, and then just being around people on a base. I mean, Daddy Tom just spoiled me with whatever, you know, whatever he had. Um, my he they raised children though to to be very generous as well, and my parents were a great example of that. Um, and so they always, they always, uh, always remember that. And even when times were pretty tough, uh, my dad was an entrepreneur and my mom was an educator. But when times would get like pretty lean, my parents still continued to give through those periods. And, um, as a, uh, after I got out of the Marine Corps, um, and, and met my current husband, I, a lot of my neighbors had jobs with the Semper Fi Fund, and I knew about the organization. And I just felt like with with Ranch Road, if we didn't, you know, we weren't big enough to start our own charity, and I didn't really feel like that was necessary because Semper Fi Fund was doing such a good job with the the money donated to them and really keeping their own overhead very lean. And I felt like it would match our business as well, as far as trying to run a lean organization and deliver great value to our customers. So that's why I chose to, to support that charitable organization. And I would say they also have America's Fund, so the money donated goes to all branches, veterans of all branches of the of the military. And they they, I mean, if you're in a bind, that you can call them and they will they will help you out. And I know that um, I don't know specifics, but I know I have friends that are caseworkers, and just in generalities, you hear the type of things that the Simplify Fund does, and people get in. You know, everybody falls on hard times, but you can you can call them, and they really help people in their time of need very quickly. That's wonderful. It's really wonderful to hear that there's an organization out there doing that for our veterans when they return. Um, so you also attended Harvard Business School. Tell us a little bit about that experience. First and foremost, why did you choose Harvard after serving in three tours of duty? You choose Harvard Business School. What was the direction that you chose to go in while you were there? I I applied to one business school because I had three months. I decided three months before getting out of the Marine Corps that I wanted to apply to business school. And I, I only had really time to properly apply for one. And I had to take the GMAT study for it in that time too. So I applied to Harvard because I'd had a former boss from the Marine Corps go there. And I started looking at their website after receiving a request for like a 360, you know, review that uh, there was like a class at first or second year of Harvard that you have to send that out to your former subordinates and bosses to get feedback. So he sent that to us, to a few of us. And I started looking at Harvard Business School's website and I was really energized by it. I thought this looks like fun. I mean, this looks great. Like, I mean, I just, I was just really blown away by it, by the marketing aspect of it. Um, and so that's why I applied there and I got, I, I got lucky. I, I think it's just, you look at the odds of it and you shouldn't really expect to get in. And I felt very lucky that I got in and fortunate. I'm sure they, they liked my Marine Corps background as well. Um, so the Marine Corps really set me up for success in that without, unbeknownst to me at the time, that for sure is helpful. Probably the reason I got in was because of my Marine Corps background. Um, and so like Harvard coming out of the Marine Corps going to, at the time I did, which was that time was 2005, I got off active duty, Harvard Business School, spending 18 months there with the, the, with the wonderful professors that they hire and all the case studies that you study was just the 
softest landing I could have ever imagined coming out of the Marine Corps. And and I, um, I, I feel just very fortunate to have had that experience and to be able to do that versus leaving the Marine Corps and going into another, just straight into a job right then without that, you know, transition time, I think would have been a, a bumpier transition. Right. That makes sense. And so, okay, you learn a lot about I guess, running a business there. Is that correct? I know you had seven years of experience, as we discussed, from the age of 10 years old, you were a janitor for your father's <laughs> yeah. office. And yeah. you worked that all the way, you turned it into an entrepreneurial venture and worked that for seven years until you were 17. And then I guess you go to the military right after that? Well, um, I did I did not. I joined, or I went to the University of Texas at Austin and and even there, it was like my dad was like, "Okay, when are you getting a job?" So it was always expected to work. Um, you you go to school, but you also need a job. And it, it you know it would be light, a little bit light because school was obviously the first priority. But I would it was a waitress or a um, or a work did work study through University of Texas. And when I graduated from University of Texas, I worked for a software startup called Trilogy, and I spent. Um, I think a year there before I quit and joined the Marine Corps, and and um, I had so it was it was a pretty fast you know switch from college to one job and into the Marine Corps and then Harvard Business School, and then I went to work for Boston Consulting Group. So when I you know I, I, the thing about Harvard Business School is it's it's more about like learning how to ask a lot of questions and your questions probably are better than when you, if you had all those cases, there's nothing that most successful entrepreneurs and business people do not go to business school. So it's, but it's, it, you do not need that for success at all. Um, and it's really, you know, just on the job training where you learn the most, but Harvard does a wonderful job of I think, teaching you to ask like really good questions. Very interesting. Now, what happened at Trilogy that made you want to leave after such a short period of time to go into the military, just out of curiosity? So I was, um, I was, I loved to, I started traveling like late in, in after college and just backpacking around Europe. And I, I just was kind of got, always worked really hard at school to try to do a good job and then I got into my first job and my overwhelming feeling was like this is it like this is what I'm supposed to do till one day I retire like I just go to a job and it felt like something was uh wrong with that like for with me not with them it was a really fun company to work for but I I I kind of longingly thought about well, maybe I could do something more fun or adventurous like Teach for America seemed cool or um, the actually the Peace Corps, not Teach for America. I was really interested in the Peace Corps and I was interested in maybe like moving to a cool ski town and teaching math or something like eighth grade math. Or <laughs> But the Marine Corps had always been part of my, my conversation like growing up because my father had been in the Marines before I was born. And so I added, you know, the Marine Corps to that. And when I was in Europe, I went to the Normandy beaches and learned a lot about the sacrifices that happened there and just felt really like a kind of a, a, a pull towards the military. Um, and so I went to talk to a Marine Corps recruiter and they're very efficient at getting you <laughs> if you show promise and, <laughs> and, uh, and 
the desire to join, they're very good at Yeah, they're really good at that, right? Really, really good at that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now, you're in Ranch Road Boots. What would you say is the sort of secret sauce, the most important part of the business for you to your to Ranch Road Boots success? I mean, right now, it's just not quitting. Um, entrepreneurship is uh, sometimes, I think, just um, a test of who, who can stand up the longest because it's really difficult day in, day out. It's a lot of fun. And I certainly enjoy much more of what I do than the parts that I don't love to do. But when you're starting a business like from scratch, it's just it's it's like just the entrepreneur has to like you know just keep on going. And I think that that is like the most important thing because I'll try a lot of stuff and a lot of a lot of things won't work. And so you have to like figure out okay quickly adjust course and try something else and then. Day in, day out, as you're trying to build a successful business, um, that gets that gets really like tiring. And I'm 42 now, so you always have the, that sense of like this is going to turn into my life's work. And I'm really opportunity cost is pretty high. I could go, I could go do something else. And so I think the most important thing that I bring to the table is like tenacity um, and and just the desire to to have to build a successful business. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And but you did touch on marketing a little bit, which I guess you learned while after your stint at Harvard, while you were at that consulting company, correct? Well, I worked at Boston Consulting Group. Um, not uh, I worked as a VP of Sales for a startup after I left Boston Consulting Group and before I joined or before I started my business. But um, the marketing, I have a marketing director at Ranch Road Boots who's very good at what she does, and uh, I think that my strength is probably on the operations side and hiring in, you know, for people that are, that are better. I hire people that are better at me in their, in their individual fields. And I'm not like telling, you know, we we're collaborate on things, but I hired them because they know more than me about this particular area. And I think marketing is one of those things that's in that category for me. And I, I did logistics in the Marine Corps, and I like to solve problems. So the kind of the messier things get, the more exhilarating it gets. And so I'm pretty good at like making decisions with 80% of the information. This is all stuff that's like, you know, day in, day out in the Marine Corps. And it's also really applicable to, to running a business as well. It's very interesting. And so would you say that that's your, you said that's your strength is putting together teams and sort of high level operations what would you say is one of your biggest weaknesses and how do you counteract that? Hmm. That is not, that's a, that's a hard answer. Not because it's like a short list, but just trying to figure out which one. Is most appropriate <laughs> that's funny. To bring up now, I am, um, um, what's the word for it? So I'm, I'm impatient for one. And, uh, not like, so I think impatient sometimes if you, you know, I'm like, yes, okay, we're going to do that. We're going to do it now. And instead of, okay, well, where does it fit into the whole plan? I'm like, okay, we're going to do everything right now. And, um, being like, okay, with things taking six months versus saying like, why is it going to take six months? Like we can get this all done in a month. Sometimes there's, um, there's, 
there's a reason sometimes you should take the six-month route versus trying to pile everything into one month. So if you'll get better results, you'll be happier with the results at the end of six months. I'm much more on the, okay, let's get it all done right now. And if, you know, if you're saying it takes six months, like, why can't we do it in one? Um, is not always the best way to do things. Right. Right. I understand that. I actually, I relate to that a little bit because I'm very similar in that context. When I see a goal or an objective, I just want to shoot right for it and kind of worry about the obstacles and react as we go. And a lot of times when you're working with a team, it's not so easy to do that. Right. So how do you deal with that when you, I would imagine that you're a very competitive person. Obviously you've um, succeeded at a high level in a lot of different arenas. So you also have a strong skill set. So how do you deal with people on your team or in your sort of people that you're surrounded by when they say, hey, we got to take a step back and slow down? How do you overcome your impatience or your propensity to just shoot from the hip? Well, I try to, um, I think trusting not your subordinates, but your team is really important. And so there, you know, if a person is still, you know, I'm still working with them and plan on still working with them, there's, you have to really pass off responsibility to people. Um, and so that's like the probably, you know, just listening and saying, okay, I see it. I see this calendar. I mainly, I trust you and, um, I believe in you and I believe that you're right is that's like, I mean, that's, that's like what I do now um, to try to get around that. And some things are not so important, you know, some things are more important to do that with, but some things you can, you know, you can say, no, you're right. You know, you do need to do it quicker and we can get this done faster. But I think trusting your team and trust giving people responsibility is, is, is really critical in building a happy, you know, happy place to, for people to work. Right. That makes sense. Do you rely more on data or on the actual people? I know you mentioned your team in there, but obviously a lot of businesses, especially when you're looking at scaling and having gone to Harvard Business School, I would imagine you constantly try to aggregate and then analyze as much data about your business as you can, especially since you're in the e-commerce realm. So do you focus more so on data or your team and what's the balance between the two? I we we look at data on a daily basis at the end of at the end of the day though you take you take the numbers and you 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 have to still go you have to still make decisions and go with like your gut feeling a lot of times about things because there's so many if you know if you first of all you need enough data to have statistically significant, you know, results and to test things and to test them often. Typically, that doesn't come with a startup. It's like a much bigger company where you have that. So, yes, we look at data, but at the end of the day, if if it's not super clear or it's like weak on the one side, you have to go with like your gut feeling about things and that you're running the brand, you know, and, and you've got, I've, I've got not, um, you know, everything, I, I side, so I would say we don't ignore it, but at the end of the day, you have to use like just judgment and to make all these decisions. That makes sense. That does make sense. So who inspires you as a leader and why? Al Graybill um, was my boss 
in the Marine Corps. He and he was. Um, I'm still friends with him today. And you're typically not. You know, you're not friends in the Marine Corps when I was a lieutenant, and he was a captain. I wasn't. You're not. You're not friends, but you have respect for somebody. And I genuinely liked him as a person. And to go by his office and listen, you know, sit down and listen to him for 30 minutes was always an enjoyable thing. Um, the thing, the reason I like, I really liked working for him. I mean, he trusted me a lot. And I always felt like, look, I'm an overachiever. And he didn't, he treated me like, hey, you got this and you're not going to screw it up. And sometimes I would say, like, oh, I'm nervous about this. And he's like, don't screw it up. <laughs> Instead of saying, like, oh, you'll be fine. That's a good way to keep you on your toes, right? It's hilarious. I know. But I was like, I felt like he was always on my, like, you know, cheering for us and rooting for us. But we were like, we didn't want to disappoint him at all. And he, 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 he just treated us like, we were capable and, and knew, you know, he, he treated me like that. And I, I really appreciated that. And I enjoyed working for him so much. Um, and I, and I didn't want to disappoint him and I, you know, would have, I would have died rather than disappointing him. But, um, I think that, that just, he was also just enjoyable to be around. And that is also very important for me. I, I get, I don't, I will, I will absolutely, you know, work myself into the ground for somebody if if they're working harder than me and there's sometimes like really stress stressful to work for but you know for longevity and especially in a job like that you can quit and do something else like that's not the boss that like is that's not healthy for me and I don't think it's healthy for a lot of people although you can learn a lot from a person like that so I was just a really um, smart person and he was fun to be around and he trusted us and um, and he gave us a lot of responsibility. Interesting. And you seem to have carried that forward. I mean, I hear it in what you're saying about, you know, really focusing a lot on your team and on the people and making sure that they're happy where they are and that they care about working for you. That's really interesting. So that's that's great to hear. Now, what are the current biggest threats to your business? The biggest threat always for me is running out of cash. Um, that is the scariest thing and the, the you know, the, the hardest thing about, about a business. It either has to get cash flow positive on its own very quickly, which is hard for a fashion brand that's starting. And so we're raising money and it is like probably one of the most stressful things I've ever done. And you know, deploying to Iraq included. <laughs> it is, it is <laughs> wow. like a constant fear because you've I've built this up for so many years, and it's like, oh my gosh, we have so many good things going on, and so many good people working with us. Um, and I really believe we can be a really huge brand. Um, but if I run out of cash, it all it all ends very quickly and painfully, and it's like a you know you're running into a brick wall, and so that that's what always keeps me up at night. Right, that makes a lot of sense. And how much of your energy or time do you spend actually looking at other competitors, and then sort of you know using that as a tool maybe to analyze yourself and your business and reacting to that? We look at. Um, we try, you, know, you try to figure out what best practices are by looking at companies that you perceive as successful. The problem is you don't really know. Maybe they're looking around, like trying to, you know, figure out how to make themselves better. 
so the danger and you know just just like mimicking each other is that you're probably not coming up with the most like creative solution if that makes sense yeah um, it does yeah i so we we do look and say, Hey, you know, I like how, I like how this is laid out or this makes sense. So that's like a good way to like, you know, that's just a good way to do whatever it is. Um, and it's, it's, and so I, I, we, I for sure do that. I just, I, you know, pay attention to what people are doing. For, for example, there's some companies right now that are doing, um, in any business that has inventory, especially in fashion, a lot of times you get caught and you're just like, I have all the things I don't need in inventory and none of the things I do need. <laughs> it's a constant, like, <laughs> okay, okay, buy more of that, like, quickly, you know, but it's not quick. And our boots take a long time to get. And so, um, and, and then you, you've got overstocked and then all of a sudden those start selling. And then, you know, you're constantly trying to react to inventory needs. And I've noticed, like, some companies are doing labs on their website where people can pre-order and it's a way to sort of test test things out and I think that's like good and that Ranch Road should do something like that so we just so we don't have a bunch of inventory that we don't know if people want um you know if you can get smarter at, at like collect if we can watch each other and all get smarter then that's better I mean I think it's like more efficient or you know companies all get more efficient is a good thing so I look at um kind of uh I look at this may not be so helpful. I look at how much money some of the companies are raising and they come out with these big, splashy, like big numbers. And, and, and sometimes that's kind of not so helpful for me because I can't, um, you know, all I can do is like keep, you know, trying, but I just, sometimes you look at it and you're just like, this seems easy for them. And I know it's not, I know that that is not a good way to look at it, but you wonder like what, you know, how come they're able to raise, $40 million, you know, when, and, and, and sometimes like I look, at, I look at, you look at the, the fundraising side of things and that's probably not such a healthy thing to focus on because the reality is like if our competitors are getting big, I, especially with direct to consumer shoe sales, that's, um, that's very helpful for all, all of us. I think it grows, it grows people's minds to buy boots and shoes on the internet, which is good for us too. Right. That makes sense. And yeah, I mean, when you're looking at, it's almost like Instagram fame, right? Like uh, social media fame. If you're looking at others and only see what they're putting out externally anyways, right? If you're looking at, oh, they seem to be doing a lot in sales, yeah. but they may be a complete wreck on the inside or they may have a lot oh, of yeah. bad debt, right? Um, so it's, well, it's know, tough. It's like the, the problems, the stressors that come with a business or just get bigger, the more zeros you tack on to the revenue. And so I know that they're facing challenges and I know the big, 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 you know, the huge companies are facing challenges, so they never go away. And that's why I have to remind myself that, look, if we do turn into the, the, hundred million dollar a year company that I think we can, I think that I, I have to be comfortable with these like messy things that happen to a business because they're just going to continue. And so I just, I'm, I'm always pretty conscious about thinking like, okay, like this is, you know, th this stuff doesn't go away. So you better, like, I do enjoy it. Um, I think there's different leaders too. That's like another Harvard, <laughs> Harvard business school learning was it seems like the entrepreneur always gets shown the door after a certain size of revenue um, because they get replaced as the CEO. <laughs> so that's always, that was always like <laughs> that kind makes of sense, the, right? 
the joke, but um, yeah. So you you did mention that you're fundraising, obviously. How much tougher is it to fundraise for a fashion business than another type of business? Okay. So, I mean, I have never tried to raise money for another type of business, but I think it's harder because it it doesn't have the allure of these like, I think these like unicorns, like some of the tech companies, um, or, or, um, maybe medical type companies. It doesn't have this, this like, Hey, if it hits, it's like ginormous. So I think it's harder for that reason. It's not as like sexy of an investment. Maybe the other thing is, is that, um, a lot of people that are making the decisions are not necessarily like, you know, into fashion themselves. And so um, that is like, that. I think that's harder. And just, I guess to be specific, it's like the, the fact is, I want to, I think it's like 2.3 or 2.5% of venture capital money goes to female-owned businesses. And I'll, I think a lot of women business owners are saying like, look, I'm trying to solve a problem that's like, like female specific and so a lot of the people that have the money are guys and they maybe don't understand that this is like a real opportunity um so so you know so there's that too right that makes a lot of sense and thank you for bringing up the female empowerment perspective how do you feel you've been in the military and now you pointed out very aptly that you're you know, in the business realm as an entrepreneur, as a female entrepreneur and trying to generate revenue. Now, your company does sell boots for men and women, just to clarify. But nonetheless, you're a female owned and operated business and founded business. So do you find that have you struggled in those predominantly male environments? And what are you finding today? Is it you know, what, what are the best practices, so to speak, for other female entrepreneurs who may be listening to this episode? What advice would you give them? Um, I, I, I felt like sometimes being a female is, is a, is a positive thing. And in, in a large, you bring a different perspective to the table. Um, that said, being a female is, it can be a little bit awkward because there's, there's, you just are, are the, if if there if you're one female out of a hundred, you stand out more, and so you feel like right or wrong that like the things you do, you know, if you screw up, it just gets more eyeballs on you. Um, but I think I I really tried to just be a good marine, and I didn't I really didn't like to get wrapped up in it's like I'm a female marine like who cares like I'm I'm a marine, and that was important, and I needed to do a good job as a lieutenant and. And, 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 you know, being a good leader to, to my Marines and not care whether I was a male or a female. That was always like really how I was raised too. Like I talked to my dad a little bit before he passed away about you know, just the challenges of raising money. And he was, he was like, no, like he didn't entertain, oh, it's female or male. He's just like, well, maybe they just don't like your business, you know? <laughs> and I think <laughs> wow. that... That, oh, yeah, like he was very blunt about it. And that is a good tactic to take as well, because I can't change this stuff like overnight. It's not going to change at the time that I'm like trying to raise this money. So if, if, if I, if I just get too focused on, oh, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a woman. That's why they're not investing. Like that is absolutely useless and counterproductive to what I'm trying to do. And, um, 
and but I'm more I, I, I am more aware of it than than I used to be, and I I think that if I can be a, a you know a, a positive data point, then that's that's good. It maybe helps somebody else to like normalize it. As I think of it, like when people are breaking these barriers on the mile that you never could have imagined that someone does it, and all of a sudden somebody coming along after you is like, "Oh, it's been done!" Like, so I can do it. So it just makes it easier for the next person. I think that that's why some of these like barriers in our minds are good to just break through um, to, to pave the way for other people. And I do appreciate, even though I don't like to focus like so much on. The fact that I'm like female owned, I do appreciate that people do with their, some investors are specifically looking to support um, female owned businesses. And I, I think that that's good. And, and it's something that I, I probably used to would have been more resistant to. But I mean, it's probably true that the more good examples of data points, the more people, um, you know, whether it's female owned or minority owned businesses, it makes it easier for the the kid who's maybe sitting in third grade grade right now to do it one day when they're older. And I think that's good for, for us and to have that diversity um, at high levels in businesses makes us, makes us a stronger country. Some other female entrepreneurs might say that there is still a lot of misogyny from men in the entrepreneurial realm. What advice would you give to those female entrepreneurs to overcome those situations? I, I, I don't totally disagree with that. I know, and whether it's like, you know, intentional or unintentional, my personal belief is mostly unintentional. Um, I will say I've had by far and away more supportive men, and, and I wouldn't be here today without those men, um, cheerleaders and mentors that have helped get me where I am today um, than detractors. It's been, it's been, you know, in the, you know, less than 5% of people, I felt like that they were working against me. Um, I also just kind of, for me, like the advice would be, I just focus on doing a good job and ignore, ignore it until you can't. And then I would call it out. Like, absolutely. Uh, you'd be very direct with, with somebody that you feel like is, is, is trying to kind of covertly work against you. Um, those, I guess maybe bullies are best just confronted right face to face. What one message would you give to other leaders to help them succeed as you have? I find it, um, I, I find a lot of people will sit on like an idea, especially like, and they don't want someone to, um, to steal their ideas. They don't want to talk about it. But I really think that it's good to, to talk to share and to find a group that you can share with or, you know, people get a lot of different perspectives on things um, instead of just trying to sit on something till it's like the perfect plan or perfect solution and go for it. Um, I really like to talk through things, especially difficult situations. Like I like to talk through with people. Um, I, I've heard the advice of think the woman that uh, founded uh, Sphinx said, and for her though, the, when she had her business was like just in its, nascent form, it was better to kind of not talk about it because there may have been too many people to tell you, no, it's never going to work. Um, so, so certainly there's that aspect. But for me, I felt like I get, I get, I come to better solutions uh, faster if I share with people. Um, and obviously with what she said, 
stay in mind, like share with people that are that kind of are very supportive of what you're trying to do and aren't just going to tell you it's not going to work. <laughs> That's a good point. So when you're opening up those lines of communication, do you set certain rules and fail safes, so to speak, to prevent yourself from encouraging yes men and women, yes people, so to speak? Um. No, I mean, I mean, I probably, I'm probably here on the overshare. Uh, <laughs> and when people, I do sometimes, like, for example, like my sister, I joke with, like, sometimes, like, if I already have my decision made up, I won't ask her because if she says like the opposite, it's like there's certain people in your life that you really have a hard time doing not what they told you to do. And she's five years older than me, and I have a problem with that with her. <laughs> so, so I probably don't tell my sister. Like if I if we're picking a shoe style, for example, and I want her opinion, and I don't do it, I'm like, Ugh, I can't. I'm gonna hear about it. Oh, that's great. What is a hustle story from early on in your entrepreneurial journey that led you to where you are today? Oh, God. Um, we, um, I feel like that's been um, in every aspect of our business. I mean, taking boots alone, like I took these like old horse trailers and like a 1974 horse borrowed my then boyfriend's like truck and drug drug it all over like Arizona to 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 measure try to get in front of people and I was doing like you know like um where you go buy produce like on Sundays like the the farmers markets and I was doing craft shows like I was going anywhere and just like and sometimes I would just like pull it up into a town and like just sit there and it would be like crickets <laughs> no one was there and I was just trying I was like trying anything including you know dragging around a horse trailer um all over I took it to California I mean I took it everywhere to just try to get our brand out there and and I look back on that and I'm like oh my god I'm I've tried to put one in Austin and one in Houston and before we had enough inventory I just split boots so like the left boot would be in the one in Houston and the le- the right boot would be the one in Austin and I still I still think this is a good idea but I was like, <laughs> it was ahead of my time I felt like it was like a showroom and we could say like hey you know try them on figure your fit and then we'll ship them to you so you don't have to like lug it home and <laughs> and it, we were closed like over half the time because of like inclement weather because they weren't climate controlled and so it was just I felt like it was like a good idea but in reality it was just like a giant billboard sitting there but no one was gonna willing to stop in a hundred degree heat and try on one shoe <laughs> <laughs> not even with the promise that the other one would fit just as well when it got back <laughs> I know oh, like, that's great well oh you you learn early on right that's part of the growing pain so to speak I know and I was looking at like Bonobos was doing or Trunk Club or Bonobos. They were doing these showrooms where they were doing that exact thing, but in a much more elevated way. And so before I hired like Valor Marketing Director, I was doing everything like, oh, I, you know, I need to pull up to daycare to pick up my daughter. And I'm like, okay, we got to do an Instagram post today. And it's pop, put one out, you know. And right. after I hired her, I was like banned from touching Instagram anymore. <laughs> <laughs> So I was just, I was like 
like doing everything and something's not so good. And it was looking like too homemade. (laughs) Well, early on, I think that's just kind of inherent with any entrepreneurial journey. Am I right? At some point, it starts somewhere, first and foremost, right? So when we see... Well, you can raise money first. The other thing, I mean, you could just take your business plan and go raise money and do it big. But I think we would have burned through a lot more cash, like doing it that way. It's hard to raise money, though, while you're in the middle of a business. I think it's easier when things are going like gangbusters or when they're uh, in its like the idea stage. And I just was always scared to lose somebody else's money. And so I didn't um, I didn't feel comfortable doing that back then. But, you know, with you know, with a with a with a healthy pot of cash, you can kind of set the right tone like early on. But you also try things and you try them in bigger ways, so you lose more money <laughs> on the failures. Well, but also the common adage is to try to bootstrap, right? So that you can make the most that you can from the beginning. So, quite frankly, a lot of entrepreneurs, probably a very high percentage, do charge into the breach, so to speak, pardon the pun, yeah. without any sort of support from investors or funding aside from friends and family, maybe, or their own savings like you did, right? So you can't be blamed for trying to uh, to bootstrap and to do everything at least early on. But you're right, for it to escalate yeah. to another level and to become scalable, you have to sort of invest in your team and you really start to you have to find people that have strategic advantages that at least fill in your weaknesses, correct? Right. Yes, for sure. And you can hit, you hit the limit, especially on a direct-to-consumer business, on what you can bootstrap because you customer acquisition cost is very expensive. If mm-hmm. you're doubling in revenue, you have to double your inventory and you have to pre-buy that. So it's not a wholesale relationship right. where the retailer is buying it. So, yeah, there's some limits on it, especially with footwear that's expensive to carry versus, say, like a sock. Um, so there's some limits to bootstrapping, but that mentality, I would love as we continue to grow to to keep that mentality in the company and have um, have people that work with the company benefit from that. So, is a company, you know, like I know there's ways to set up businesses where everybody can share that works with it and the profitability of it. So everybody's willing to to um, to you know just make sure the. Like if you know if you don't need to waste a piece of paper, don't waste a piece of paper. That kind of mentality, and then they, you know, they they benefit from it too. That would be wonderful to instill in a bigger company. What are you looking at in terms of your ninety day goals, and then let's say your ten or fifteen year goals? Yeah, you know, so we'll we'll make it a week goal because I like to do things fast. Awesome, love it. <laughs> we have we have right now we're in the middle of developing our fall collection and we have a spring photo shoot happening and we're trying to get ahead of this the boots come screaming in from spain the day before we need them um so i work with uh wonderful people that now help me with kind of line development and ordering that say hey we do this use the calendar here's when you have to do things in a year and all these people come from like very strong footwear backgrounds um and they've you know, been doing it for decades. And so we're, we are um, like literally in the next, you know, week or two weeks, we're working on fall samples. We're shooting spring, which we're going to launch like a couple weeks after. 
And um, so just pulling all of that off, plus my husband's retiring from the Marine Corps next Friday. Wow, you um, have a lot going on. <laughs> no, we, uh, we're um, in the middle of moving moving from 29 Palms, California to San Angelo, Texas, too. Wow. Wow. Very interesting. Very interesting. Cool. And so what can we expect to see from Ranch Road Boots in the next, say, five years, 10 years? What, where would you like to see the business? I think we can be an 80 to $100 million a year business in that time frame. Um, not easily, but that's not like... that's. I, I don't feel like crazy when I'm saying that. Um, there's no reason why we can't and people love to buy from our brand and they like you know the transparency that we offer and i think more interesting um and i think we'll get well i know we'll continue to put out uh, great products and and appeal to this you know millennial female shopper and continue to provide you know men's we we for sure want to continue to grow in men's um but our focus is um is, I, like what my focus is and what I believe the market will, will take and how we're going about it and the people that I'm working with on a team, I think we can be a really big footwear brand. That's wonderful. Wonderful. So if people want to check out your company, they can obviously go to ranchroadboots.com. How can people get in contact with you if they want to reach you directly? Email us um, the support email address and any personal messages to me, go through that and get shuttled off to me too. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. I think this was a really informative episode and I hope you've had fun. It was great to have you on the show and we look forward to all of the exciting things that Ranch Road Boots has in store for us in the next decade or so. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. I'm your host, Tony Lopes. And with me today is Sarah Ford, the founder of Ranch Road Boots. Hey, Sarah, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks. Thanks for making the time to meet with us. As you can hear, Sarah is on the phone calling us from Palm Springs. Beautiful weather out there, I would imagine. Sunny, beautiful day. Sarah, you founded Ranch Road Boots in 2012 with the $60,000 that you had saved from previous jobs. Why don't you tell us how you got started with Ranch Road Boots and what inspired you to start the company? I will. I would love to talk about that. So to be clear, you know, the 60000 was not directly, it was, it was, I think like most entrepreneurs, you kind of have to live off that too. Um, so I was that that sort of provided what you know the the loss of income from quitting my day job that sort of provided the day to day living expenses for me. And Ranch Road, in its in its original form, we were not selling in stock um, boots. We were selling custom boots. So I didn't have the need for a bunch of 
inventory, um, which was a nice way to learn about the shoe business. Uh, today, we look like a very, very different company. We have the same name, but it's a very different company as what I originally started. But without having a lot of startup capital, um, that's what I had to do. Now you said that the company looks a bit different. Can you explain to us how it's evolved from 2012 to now in the eight years that you've been running Ranch Road Boots? Yes, originally, I was trying to kind of be the Nike ID of cowboy boots. And Nike ID at the time was where you could go on the Nike's website, design your own sneakers. The designs would live on the website and other people could buy them. So it was kind of a crowdsource shoe design mechanism. I had I thought that I could do something similar with Western cowboy boots. And that that really my you know, instead of a whole business plan at the beginning, I just decided to try to sell fifty pair of boots. And that would mean a lot on the back end. That would mean that I'd have a supplier and that I would have a way to have customers and um, from the beginning, I, you know, kept it very professional from like an accounting standpoint and a business standpoint. So I went through all the, the steps to treat it like, you know, the very real business it was to me. But we, what I originally started out doing and what we look like today are like polar opposites because we don't sell custom boots now. We carry in stock boots. Um, so we ship them to people much more like an e-commerce business than when I originally started. And have you found that to be a better outlet and a better way to generate revenue for your organization than your original method? Or, you know, did you prefer the original method, but kind of had to change into more of an e-commerce model? I had to change because there aren't enough custom bootmakers in, um, really, I think of custom bootmakers today as artists. And you, you buy individual works of art from the artists. And it's not a very scalable business plan because of the supply part of the equation. So, um, so really, we had to do in stock boots because you know there's just not enough living bootmakers today um, to keep. You know, that's why people have two-year wait lists at, at, at a lot of custom boot shops. Right, that makes sense. And so, you talked about scalability. Was that one of the things you focused on from early on? Yes. And um, a thing that I think about today is uh, scalability with the current team and what, you know, at what point do you have to add new new people? Um, we try to stay very lean, at, at, you know, in the early stages of the business and outsource as much as possible. Um, and so I for very much have that mindset. But um, we also want to be prepared for these you know, super lucky moments where all of a sudden sales could take off or things that are out of your control and be prepared for that too. So I always think of in terms of is our factory capable of scaling? Is our, uh, you know, is our logistics system capable of scaling? Is our sales platform capable of scaling? Um, to, to be prepared for, for overnight success, which typically doesn't happen, but if it does, you want to be ready for it. In that instance, what is your game plan? If you do sort of go viral, so to speak, or you, you know, boom, and all of a sudden, you're, you're doubling your revenue from one month to the next. What's your game plan to react to that? Um, you know, I am kind of wrestling with this right now. If you have a moment where a celebrity is seen in your boots, and it just catches on overnight, say, 
that, that typically doesn't happen, but if it does, and it's not unheard of for happening, and we're, we're for sure, um, you know, working on moments like that to happen, I'm kind of torn today on whether to do pre-orders and to have people on wait lists or uh, just take email addresses and say, we'll notify you when we've got it in stock and then you can buy it. And honestly, I don't have... Um, I, right now, we just do the email version, but a part of me, you know, wants to go ahead and make the sale and then to deliver the product on the back end. Um, it's but it's a much bigger headache, and it can turn into a customer service nightmare if your expectations as a consumer doesn't match with the timeline that the company's promising. So um, I've had experience with it in the past, and we've handled it, but it is like a much bigger headache for the company and for the consumer, really. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, it's obvious to me, at least, that you spend a lot of time thinking about what your target audience is focused on and what they want to see from Branch Road Boots. So do you iterate some process that gets you customer feedback aside from your reviews? I I see on your website, you have 368 reviews. 341 of that is five-star reviews. So you're doing very, very, very well. Obviously, you're delivering on in terms of quality and people must be happy with the service as well. But is there another way that you're making sure that you're meeting your customers' expectations? Yeah, I would say the two, there are, I think we have two one-star reviews and they're accidents, but <laughs> I can't change it. So if you read the review, it doesn't match the one-star. Oh, uh, that's funny. <laughs> so anyway... Um, yeah, and those are all legitimate reviews. They're, you know, not my mom leaving them. Um, but, but yeah, we we are, um, we don't, so our customer service email, you people tell you what they want. Um, we don't sell, for example, a wide option like a 4E or a 3E because it would just require a whole lot more money invested in inventory. But um, uh, you know, wide calves and wide feet are probably our most common requested thing. And so if we were to introduce something, like if we have a boot that we're, we're it's an evergreen boot, we're going to keep it forever and really double down on it, you, we would go into width. And that's just based off customer feedback. Um, so also with with fashion, I mean, we're functional, but we're very much, uh, we have an eye towards an aesthetic towards fashion as well. And you, you see what, um, people are gravitating towards in centers like fashion centers, like LA, Paris, New York. And, and really it's fun to see how men and women are, that are non-traditional bootwears are styling our you know, our styling cowboy boots. And, and you react to that a little bit too. We want to keep with clean classic designs, but at the same time, we want to sprinkle into each collection um, something that's interesting and fun for people that are very fashion focused as well. Right. That makes sense. And I am looking at your boots right now as we speak on the phone uh, on this podcast, and they are gorgeous. They look stunning. Now, you modeled this sort of based on or at least inspired by your grandfather, Daddy Tom. Can you tell us a little bit about Daddy Tom and how he led to the inspiration for these boots? I was the my dad was the youngest of four kids of Daddy Tom and Mama Julie. And then I was the youngest of like all the grandkids. And growing up in San Angelo, Texas, in the late 70s and 80s, I had the unique opportunity to have 
or a grandfather that at that time he had retired. He finished his work as a cowboy, then they moved the family to San Angelo, and he went to work for the water department, and he, that's where he ultimately retired from. But he was by and large retired and like watching Gunsmoke and sitting on you know, his lazy boy <laughs> worked out every morning, but I, I got to hang out with him at, at, you know, at a young age for me. And I, like, I won the, like, let's see, 20, trying to remember the year he died, but I was, I was young all through my formative years. I got to hang out with daddy Tom and he was like hilarious to me and always fun and always, you know, up for a joke or to, you know, to go buy me candy or, whatever I wanted basically and he didn't have a lot of money but whatever he had he was happy to just give it away so um daddy Tom was just always a a nice like I was a pretty intense kid as far as school and everything and physical fitness and all that um my father was as well and so daddy Tom was always like for me he was always a source of just kind of fun uh which was nice and so he he also was a, a very legitimate cowboy that broke horses for a living before he read water meters and and he was very good working with horses and so um he loved even after that time of his life he always loved to have a nice pair of boots and starched shirt and starched jeans or starched jeans or slacks and a really nice hat and that was always like that was his uniform so he he kind of put in a put in me at an early age of love for a nice pair of cowboy boots and the respect for them as well. Oh, that's incredible. And so his giving nature, I guess, is in part why you've chosen to give back to the injured Marine Semper Fi Fund. I know you served and you're a Marine Corps veteran. You served two tours in Iraq and one in Afghanistan. First and foremost, Thank you so much for your service. That's an incredible sacrifice that you've made for our freedoms, and we greatly appreciate that. But was that in part, was Daddy Tom's sort of giving nature, as you said, part of the reason that you give back to the Injured Marines Semper Fi Fund? Well, thank you. Um, I was, it was probably my parents' example, and then just being around people on a base. I mean, Daddy Tom just spoiled me with whatever, you know, whatever he had. Um, my, he, they raised children though, to, to be very generous as well. And my parents were a great example of that. Um, and so they always, they always, uh, always remember that. And even when times were pretty tough, uh, my dad was an entrepreneur and my mom was an educator. So when times would get like pretty lean, my parents still continued to give through those periods. And, um, as a, after I got out of the Marine Corps, um, and, and met my current husband. I a lot of my neighbors had jobs with the Semper Fi Fund, and I knew about the organization. And I just felt like with with Ranch Road, if we didn't, you know, we weren't big enough to start our own charity, and I didn't really feel like that was necessary because Semper Fi Fund was doing such a good job with the the money donated to them and really keeping their own overhead very lean and I felt like it would match our business as well as far as trying to run a lean organization and deliver great value to our customers. So that's why I chose to, to support that charitable organization. And I would say they also have America's Fund, so the money donated goes to all branches, veterans of all branches of the of the military. And they 
they, I mean, if you're in a bind that you can call them and they will, they will help you out. And I know that, um, I don't know specifics, but I know I have friends that are caseworkers and just in generalities, you hear the type of things that the Super 5 Fund does and people get in, you know, everybody falls on hard times, but you can, you can call them and they really help people in their time of need very quickly. That's wonderful. It's really wonderful to hear that there's an organization out there doing that for our veterans when they return. Um, so you also attended Harvard Business School. Tell us a little bit about that experience. First and foremost, why did you choose Harvard after serving in three tours of duty? You choose Harvard Business School. What was the direction that you chose to go in while you were there? I I applied to one business school because I had three months. I decided three months before getting out of the Marine Corps that I wanted to apply to business school. And I, I only had really time to properly apply for one. And I had to take the GMAT study for it in that time too. So I applied to Harvard because I'd had a former boss from the Marine Corps go there. And I started looking at their website after receiving a request for like a 360 you know, review that uh, there was like a class at first or second year of Harvard that you have to send that out to your former subordinates and bosses to get feedback. So he sent that to us, to a few of us, and I started looking at Harvard Business School's website, and I was really energized by it. I thought, this looks like fun. I mean, this looks great. Like, I mean, I just, I was just really blown away by it, by the marketing aspect of it. Um, And so that's why I applied there, and I got, I, I got lucky. I, I think it's just you look at the odds of it, and you shouldn't really expect to get in. And I felt very lucky that I got in and fortunate. I'm sure they, they liked my Marine Corps background as well. Um, so the Marine Corps really set me up for success in that without unbeknownst to me at the time. That for sure is helpful. Probably the reason I got in was because of my Marine Corps background. Um, and so, it, like, Harvard, coming out of the Marine Corps, going to at the time I did, which was that time was 2005, I got off active duty, Harvard Business School, spending 18 months there with the, the with the wonderful professors that they hire and all the case studies that you study was just the softest landing I, I could have ever imagined coming out of the Marine Corps. And and I, um, I, I feel just very fortunate to have had that experience and to be able to do that versus leaving the Marine Corps and going into another, just straight into a job right then without that, you know, transition time, I think would have been a, a bumpier transition. Right. That makes sense. And so, okay, you learn a lot about, I guess, running a business there. Is that correct? I know you had seven years of experience, as we discussed, from the age of 10 years old, you were a janitor for your father's <laughs> office. And you yeah. worked that all the way, you turned it into an entrepreneurial venture and worked that for seven years until you were 17. And then I guess you go to the military right after that? Well, um, I, did, I did not. I joined, or I went to the University of Texas at Austin. And and even there, it was like, my dad was like, okay, when are you getting a job? So it was always expected to work. Um, you, you go to school, but you also need a job. And it, it, you know, it would be light, a little bit light because school was obviously the first priority, but I would, it was a waitress or a, um, or a work, did work study through University of Texas. And when I graduated from University of Texas, I worked for a software startup called Trilogy. And I spent, um, I think a year there before I quit and joined the Marine Corps. And, and, um, I had 
so it was it was a pretty fast you know switch from college to one job and into the Marine Corps and then Harvard Business School, and then I went to work for Boston Consulting Group. So when I you know I, I, the thing about Harvard Business School is it's it's more about like learning how to ask a lot of questions and your questions probably are better than when you, if you had all those cases, there's nothing that most successful entrepreneurs and business people do not go to business school. So it's, but it's, it, you do not need that for success at all. Um, and it's really, you know, just on the job training where you learn the most, but Harvard does a wonderful job of I think, teaching you to ask like really good questions. Very interesting. Now, what happened at Trilogy that made you want to leave after such a short period of time to go into the military, just out of curiosity? So I was, um, I was, I loved to, I started traveling like late in, in after college and just backpacking around Europe. And I, I just was kind of got, always worked really hard at school to try to do a good job and then I got into my first job and my overwhelming feeling was like this is it like this is what I'm supposed to do till one day I retire like I just go to a job and it felt like something was uh wrong with that like with me not with them it was a really fun company to work for but I I I kind of longingly thought about well, maybe I could do something more fun or adventurous like Teach for America seemed cool or um, the actually the Peace Corps, not Teach for America. I was really interested in the Peace Corps and I was interested in maybe like moving to a cool ski town and teaching math or something like eighth grade math. Or <laughs> But the Marine Corps had always been part of my, my conversation like growing up because my father had been in the Marines before I was born. And so I added, you know, the Marine Corps to that. And when I was in Europe, I went to the Normandy beaches and learned a lot about the sacrifices that happened there and just felt really like a kind of a, a, a pull towards the military. Um, and so I went to talk to a Marine Corps recruiter and they're very efficient at getting you <laughs> if you show promise and, <laughs> and, uh, and the desire to join. They're very good at yeah. They're really good that at that, that right? Probably. Really, really good at that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now you're in Ranch Road Boots. What would you say is the sort of secret sauce, the most important part of the business for you to your to Ranch Road Boots success? I mean, right now it's just not quitting. Um, entrepreneurship is uh, sometimes I think just um, a test of who, who can stand up the longest because it's really difficult day in, day out. It's a lot of fun. And I certainly enjoy much more of what I do than the parts that I don't love to do. But when you're starting a business like from scratch, it's just, it's, it's like just the entrepreneur has to like, you know, just keep on going. And I think that that is like the most important thing because I'll try a lot of stuff and a lot of, a lot of things won't work. And so you have to like figure out, okay, quickly adjust course and try something else. And then day in, day out, as you're trying to build a successful business, um, that gets, that gets really like tiring. And I'm 42 now. So you always have the, that sense of like, this is going to turn into my life's work and I'm really opportunity cost is pretty high. I could go, I could go do something else. And so I think the most important thing that I bring to the table is like tenacity um, and, and just the desire to, to have to build a successful business. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
And but you did touch on marketing a little bit, which I guess you learned while after your stint at Harvard while you were at that consulting company, correct? Well, I worked at Boston Consulting Group. Um, not uh, I worked as a VP of Sales for a startup after I left Boston Consulting Group and before I joined or before I started my business. But um, the marketing, I have a marketing director at Ranch Road Boots who's very good at what she does, and uh, I think that my strength is probably on the operations side and hiring in, you know, for people that are that are better. I hire people that are better at me in their in their individual fields. And I'm not like telling, you know, we we're collaborate on things, but I hired them because they know more than me about this particular area. And I think marketing is one of those things that's in that category for me. And I I did logistics in the Marine Corps and I like to solve problems. So the kind of the messier things get, the more exhilarating it gets. And so I'm pretty good at like making decisions with 80% of the information. This is all stuff that's like, you know, day in, day out in the Marine Corps. And it's also really applicable to, to running a business as well. It's very interesting. And so would you say that that's your, you said that's your strength is putting together teams and sort of high level operations what would you say is one of your biggest weaknesses and how do you counteract that? Hmm. That is not, that's a, that's a hard answer. Not because it's like a short list, but just trying to figure out which one. Is most appropriate. <laughs> that's funny. So bring up now. I am, um, um, what's the word for it? So I'm, I'm impatient for one. And, uh, not like, so I think impatient sometimes if you, you know, I'm like, yes, okay, we're going to do that. We're going to do it now. And instead of, okay, well, where does it fit into the whole plan? I'm like, okay, we're going to do everything right now. And, um, being like, okay, with things taking six months versus saying like, well, why is it going to take six months? Like we can get this all done in a month. Sometimes there's, um, there's, there's a reason sometimes you should take the six month route versus trying to pile everything into one month. So if you'll get better results, you'll be happier with the results at the end of six months. I'm much more on the, okay, let's get it all done right now. And if, you know, if you're saying it takes six months, like why can't we do it in one um, is not always the best way to do things. Right. Right. I understand that. I actually, I relate to that a little bit because I'm very similar in that context when I see a goal or an objective. I just want to shoot right for it and kind of worry about the obstacles and react as we go. And a lot of times when you're working with a team, it's not so easy to do that, right? So how do you deal with that when you... I would imagine that you're a very competitive person. Obviously, you've um, succeeded at a high level in a lot of different arenas. So you also have a strong skill set. So how do you deal with people on your team or in your sort of people that you're surrounded by when they say, hey, we got to take a step back and slow down. How do you overcome your impatience or your propensity to just shoot from the hip? Well, I try to, um, I think trusting not your subordinates, but your team is really important. And so there, you know, if a person is still, you know, I'm still working with them and plan on still working with them, there's, you have to really, pass off responsibility to people. Um, and so that's like the probably, you know, just listening and saying, okay, I see it. I see this calendar. I mainly, I trust you and, um, I believe in you and I believe 
it. You're right. Is that's like I mean that's that's like what I do now um, to try to get around that. And some things are not so important. You know, some things are more important to do that with. But some things you can you know you say no. You're right. You know you do need to do it quicker, and we can get this done faster. But I think trusting your team and trust giving people responsibility is 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 really critical in building a happy you know happy place to, for people to work. Right, that makes sense. Do you rely more on data or on the actual people? I know you mentioned your team in there, but obviously a lot of businesses, especially when you're looking at scaling and having gone to Harvard Business School, I would imagine you constantly try to aggregate and then analyze as much data about your business as you can, especially since you're in the e-commerce realm. So do you focus more so on data or your team? And what's the balance between the two? I, we, we look at data on a daily basis. At the end of, at the, end of the day, though, you take, you take the numbers and you, you, you have to still go, you have to still make decisions and go with like your gut feeling a lot of times about things because there's so many, if, you know, if you, first of all, you need enough data to have statistically significant, you know, results and to test things and to test them often. Typically that doesn't come with a startup. It's like a much bigger company where you have that. So yes, we look at data, but at the end of the day, if, if it's not super clear or it's like weak on the one side, you have to go with like your gut feeling about things and that you're running the brand, you know, and, and you've got, I've, I've got not, um, you know, everything, I, I decide, so I would say we don't ignore it, but at the end of the day, you have to use like just judgment and, and to make all these decisions. That makes sense. That does make sense. So who inspires you as a leader and why? Al Graybill um, was my boss in the Marine Corps. He, and he was, um, I'm still friends with, him today and you're typically not you know you're not friends in the marine corps when i was lieutenant and he was the captain i wasn't you're not you're not friends but you have respect for somebody and i genuinely liked him as a person and to go by his office and listen you know sit down and listen to him for 30 minutes was always an enjoyable thing um the thing the reason i like i really liked working for him i mean he trusted me a lot and i always felt like look i'm an overachiever and he didn't, he treated me like, hey, you got this and you're not going to screw it up. And sometimes I would say like, oh, I'm nervous about this. And he's like, don't screw it up. <laughs> Instead of saying like, oh, you'll be fine. That's a good way to keep you on your toes, right? It's hilarious. I know. But I was like, I felt like he was always on my, like, you know, cheering for us and rooting for us. But we were like, we didn't want to disappoint him at all. And he, 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 he just treated us like, we were capable and, and knew, you know, he, he treated me like that. And I, I really appreciated that. And I enjoyed working for him so much. Um, and I, and I didn't want to disappoint him and I, you know, would have, I would have died rather than disappointing him. But, um, I think that, that just, he was also just enjoyable to be around. And that is also very important for me. I, I get, I don't, I will, I will absolutely, you know, work myself, into the ground for somebody if if they're working harder than me and they're sometimes like really stress stressful to work for but 
you know, for longevity and especially in a job like that you can quit and do something else, like that's not the boss that like is that's not healthy for me. And I don't think it's healthy for a lot of people, although you can learn a lot from a person like that. So I was just a really um, smart person and he was fun to be around and he trusted us and um, and he gave us a lot of responsibility. Interesting. And you seem to have carried that forward. I mean, I hear it in what you're saying about, you know, really focusing a lot on your team and on the people and making sure that they're happy where they are and that they care about working for you. That's really interesting. So that's that's great to hear. Now, what are the current biggest threats to your business? The biggest threat always for me is running out of cash. Um, that is the scariest thing. And the the you know, the, the hardest thing about, about a business, it either has to get cash flow positive on its own very quickly, which is hard for a fashion brand that's starting. And so we're raising money and it is like probably one of the most stressful things I've ever done. And, you know, deploying to Iraq, <laughs> it is, it is <laughs> wow. like a constant fear because you've I've built this up for so many years and it's like oh my gosh we have so many good things going on and so many good people working with us um and i really believe we can be a really huge brand um but if i run out of cash it all it all ends very quickly and painfully and it's like a you know you're running into a brick wall and so that that's what always keeps me up at night right that makes a lot of sense and how much of your energy or time do you spend actually looking at other competitors and then sort of, you know, using that as a tool maybe to analyze yourself and your business and reacting to that? We look at, um, we try, you, know, you try to figure out what best practices are by looking at companies that you perceive as successful. The problem is you don't really know, maybe they're looking around like trying to, you know, figure out how to make themselves better. So the danger and, you know, just, just like mimicking each other is that you're probably not coming up with the most like creative solution. If that makes sense. Yeah, um, it does. Yeah. I, so we, we do look and say, Hey, you know, I like how, I like how this is laid out or this makes sense. So that's like a good way to like, you know, that's just a good way to do whatever it is. Um, and it's, it's, and so I, I, we, I for sure do that. I just, I, you know, pay attention to what people are doing. For, for example, there's some companies right now that are doing, um, in any business that has inventory, especially in fashion, a lot of times you get caught and you're just like, I have all the things I don't need in inventory and none of the things I do need. It's a constant, like, <laughs> okay, buy more of that, like quickly, you know, but it's not quick and our boots take a long time to get. And so, um, and, and then you, you've got overstocked and then all of a sudden those start selling. And then, you know, you're constantly trying to react to inventory needs. And I've noticed like some companies are doing labs on their website where people can pre-order and it's a way to sort of test, test things out. And I think that's like good. And that Ranch Road should do something like that. So just so we don't have a bunch of inventory that we don't know if people want, um, you know, if you can get smarter, like collect, if we can watch each other and all get smarter, then that's better. I mean, I think it's like more efficient or, you know, companies all get more efficient is a good thing. So I look at um, kind of, uh, I look at 
this may not be so helpful. I look at how much money some of the companies are raising and they come out with these big, splashy, like big numbers. And, and, and sometimes that's kind of not so helpful for me because I can't, um, you know, all I can do is like keep, you know, trying, but I just, sometimes you look at it and you're just like, it seems easy for them. And I know it's not, I know that that is not a good way to look at it, but you wonder like what, you know, how come they're able to raise $40 million, you, you know, when, and then, and sometimes like I look at, I look at, you look at the, the fundraising side of things and that's probably not such a healthy thing to focus on because the reality is like if our competitors are getting big, I, especially with direct to consumer shoe sales, that's, um, that's very helpful for all, all of us. I think it grows, it grows people's minds to buy boots and shoes on the internet, which is good for us too. Right. That makes sense. And yeah, I mean, when you're looking at it's almost like Instagram fame, right? Like uh, social media fame. If you're looking at others and only see what they're putting out externally anyways, right? If you're looking at, oh, they seem to be doing a lot in sales, yeah. but they may be a complete wreck on the inside or they may have a lot oh, of yeah. bad debt, right? Um, so it's, well, it's know, tough. It's like the, the problems, the stressors that come with the business are just get bigger the more zeros you tack on to the revenue. And so I know that they're facing challenges and I know the big, 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 you know, the huge companies are facing challenges, so they never go away. And that's why I have to remind myself that, look, if we do turn into the the $100 million a year company that I think we can, I think that I, I have to be comfortable with these like messy things that happen to a business because they're just going to continue. And so I just, I'm, I'm always pretty conscious about thinking like, okay, like this is, you know, th this stuff doesn't go away. So you better, like, I do enjoy it. Um, I think there's different leaders too. That's like another Harvard, <laughs> Harvard Business School learning was it seems like the entrepreneur always gets shown the door after a certain size of revenue um, because they get replaced as the CEO. <laughs> so that's all. That was always like <laughs> that kind makes of sense, the, right? The joke, but um, yeah. So you you did mention that you're fundraising. Obviously, how much tougher is it to fundraise for a fashion business than another type of business? Okay, so I mean, I have never tried to raise money for another type of business, but I think it's harder because it it doesn't have the allure of these like I think these like unicorns like some of the tech companies um, or or um, maybe medical type companies it doesn't have this this like hey if it hits it's like ginormous so I think it's harder for that reason it's not as like sexy of an investment maybe the other thing is is that um, a lot of people that are making the decisions are not necessarily like, you know, into fashion themselves. And so, um, that is like that. I think that's harder. And just, I guess to be specific, it's like the, the fact is, I want to, I think it's like 2.3 or 2.5% of venture capital money goes to female owned businesses. And I'll, I think a lot of women, business owners are saying like, look, I'm trying to solve a problem that's like, like female specific. And so a lot of the people that have the money are guys and they maybe don't understand that this is like a real opportunity. Um, so, so, you know, so there's that too. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And thank you for bringing up the female empowerment 
perspective. How do you feel you've been in the military and now you pointed out very aptly that you're, you know, in the business realm as an entrepreneur, as a female entrepreneur and trying to generate revenue. Now your company does sell boots for men and women, just to clarify, but nonetheless, you're a female owned and operated business and founded business. So do you find that have you struggled in those predominantly male environments? And what are you finding today? Is it, you know, what what are the best practices, so to speak, for other female entrepreneurs who may be listening to this episode? What advice would you give them? Um, I I did, I felt like sometimes being a female is is a, is a positive thing in in a large because you bring a different perspective to the table. Um, that said, being a female is, it can be a little bit awkward because there's there's you just are, are the if if there if you're one female out of a hundred you stand out more and so you feel like right or wrong that like the things you do you know if you screw up it just gets more eyeballs on you. Um, but I think I I really tried to just be a good marine. And I didn't, I really didn't like to get wrapped up in it. Like I'm a female Marine. Like who cares? Like I'm, I'm a Marine and that was important. And I needed to do a good job as a Lieutenant and, 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 you know, being a good leader to, to my Marines and not care whether I was a male or female. That was always like really how I was raised too. Like I talked to my dad a little bit before he passed away about you know, just the challenges of raising money. And he was, he was like, no, like he didn't entertain, oh, it's female or male. He's just like, well, maybe they just don't like your business, you know? <laughs> and I think <laughs> wow. that, that, oh yeah, like he was very blunt about it. And that is a good tactic to take as well, because I can't change this stuff like overnight. It's not going to change in the time that I'm like trying to raise this money. So if, if I if I just get too focused on oh I'm a I'm a you know I'm a woman that's why they're not investing like that is absolutely useless and counterproductive to what I'm trying to do, and um and but I'm more I I, I am more aware of it than than I used to be and I I think that if I can be a, a you know a, a positive data point then that's good and maybe help somebody else to like normalize it is I think of it like when people are breaking these barriers on the mile that you never could have imagined that someone does it and all of a sudden somebody coming along after you is like oh it's been done like so I can do it so it just makes it easier for the next person I think that that's why some of these like barriers in our minds are good to just break through um, to, to pave the way for other people and I do appreciate even though I don't like to focus like so much on the fact that I'm like female owned, I do appreciate that people do with their, some investors are specifically looking to support um, female owned businesses. And I, I think that that's good. And, and it's something that I, I probably used to would have been more resistant to, but I mean, it's probably true that the more good examples of data points, the more people, um, you know, whether it's female owned or minority owned businesses, it makes it easier for the the kid who's maybe sitting in third grade grade right now to do it one day when they're older. And I think that's good for, for us and to have that diversity um, at high levels in businesses makes us, makes us a stronger country. Some other female entrepreneurs might say that there is still a lot of misogyny from men in the entrepreneurial realm. What advice would you give to those female entrepreneurs to overcome those situations? I 
I don't totally disagree with that. I know, and whether it's like, you know, intentional or unintentional, my personal belief is mostly unintentional. Um, I will say I've had by far and away more supportive men, and, and I wouldn't be here today without those men. Um, cheerleaders and mentors that have helped get me where I am today um, than detractors. It's been, it's been, you know, in the, you know, less than 5% of people I felt like that they were working against me. Um, also just kind of, for me, like the advice would be, I just focus on doing a good job and ignore, ignore it until you can't. And then I would call it out. Like, absolutely. Uh, you'd be very direct with, with, somebody that you feel like is, is, is trying to kind of covertly work against you. Um, those, I guess, maybe bullies are best just confronted right face to face. What one message would you give to other leaders to help them succeed as you have? I find it, um, I, I find a lot of people sit on like an idea, especially like, and they don't want someone to, um, to steal their ideas, they don't want to talk about it. But I really think that it's good to, to talk, to share, and to find a group that you can share with, or per, you know, people get a lot of different perspectives on things um, instead of just trying to sit on something till it's like the perfect plan or perfect solution and go for it. Um, I really like to talk through things, especially difficult situations. Like I like to talk through with people. Um, I've heard the advice of think the woman that founded Spanx said, and for her though, the, when she had her business was like just in its nascent form, it was better to kind of not talk about it because there may have been too many people to tell you no, it's never going to work. Um, so, so certainly there's that aspect. But for me, I felt like I get, I get, I come to better solutions uh, faster if I share with people, um, and obviously what she said in mind, like share with people that are, that kind of are very supportive of what you're trying to do and aren't just going to tell you it's not going to work. <laughs> That's a good point. So when you're opening up those lines of communication, do you set certain rules and fail safes, so to speak, to prevent yourself from encouraging yes, men and women, yes, people, so to speak? Um, no, I mean, I mean, I probably, I'm probably here on the overshare uh, <laughs> and when people, I do sometimes like, for example, like my sister, I joke with like, sometimes like if I already have my decision made up, I won't ask her because if she says like the opposite, it's like, there's certain people in your life that you really have a hard time doing not what they told you to do. And she's five years older than me. And I have a problem with that with her. <laughs> so, so I probably don't tell my sister, like if I, if we're picking a shoe style, for example, and I want her opinion and I don't do it. I'm like, Ugh, I, I can't. I'm going to hear about it. Oh, that's great. What is a hustle story from early on in your entrepreneurial journey that led you to where you are today? Oh God, um, we, um, I feel like that's been, um, in every aspect of our business. I mean, taking boots alone, like I took these like old horse trailers and like a 1974 horse trailer and just borrowed my then boyfriend's like truck and drug, drug it all over like Arizona to, to, to measure, try to get in front of people. And I was doing like, you know, like, um, 
where you go buy produce, like on Sundays, like the, the farmer's markets and I was doing craft shows. Like I was going anywhere and just like, and sometimes I would just like pull it up into a town and like just sit there and it would be like crickets. <laughs> no one was there. And I was just trying, I was like trying anything, including, you know, dragging around a horse trailer um, all over. I took it to California. I mean, I took it everywhere to just try to get our brand out there. And, and I look back on that and I'm like, oh my God, I'm, I've tried to put one in Austin and one in Houston. And before we had enough inventory, I just split boots. So like the left boot would be in the one in Houston and the, le- the right boot would be the one in Austin. And I still, I, I still think this is a good idea, but I was like, <laughs> like it was ahead of my time. I felt like it was like a showroom and we could say like, hey, you know, try them on, figure your fit, and then we'll ship them to you. So you don't have to like lug it home. And <laughs> and it, we were closed like over half the time because of like inclement weather because they weren't climate controlled. And so it was just, I felt like it was like a good idea, but in reality, it was just like a giant billboard sitting there, but no one was gonna willing to stop in a hundred degree heat and try on one shoe. <laughs> <laughs> Not even with the promise that the other one would fit just as well when it got back. <laughs> I know. Oh, uh, that's great. Well, oh you, you learn early on, right? That's part of the growing pain, so to speak. I know. And I was looking at like Bonobos was doing or Trunk Club or Bonobos. They were doing these showrooms where they were doing that exact thing, but in a much more elevated way. And so before I hired like Valor marketing director, I was doing everything like, oh, I, you know, I need to pull up to daycare to pick up my daughter. And I'm like, okay, we got to do an Instagram post today. And it's pop, put one out, you know. And right. after I hired her, I was like banned from touching Instagram anymore. <laughs> <laughs> So I was just, I was like doing everything and something's not so good. And it was looking like too homemade. (laughs) Well, early on, I think that's just kind of inherent with any entrepreneurial journey. Am I right? At some point, it starts somewhere first and foremost, right? So when we see... Well, you can raise money first. The other thing you could just take your business plan and go raise money and do it big. But I think we would have burned through a lot more cash, like doing it that way. It's hard to raise money though while you're in the middle of a business. I think it's easier when things are going like gangbusters or when they're uh, in its like the idea stage. And I just was always scared to lose somebody else's money. And so I didn't, um, I didn't feel comfortable doing that back then, but you know, with, you know, with a, with a, with a healthy pot of cash, you can kind of set the right tone like early on, but you also try things and you try them in bigger ways. So you lose more money on the failures. (laughs) Well, but also the common adage is to try to bootstrap, right? So that you can make the most that you can from the beginning. So quite frankly, a lot of entrepreneurs, probably a very high percentage do charge into the breach, so to speak, pardon the pun, Yeah. without any sort of support from investors or funding aside from friends and family, maybe, or their own savings like you did, right? So you can't be blamed for trying to uh, to bootstrap and to do everything at least early on. But you're right, for it to escalate yeah. to another level and to become scalable, you have to sort of invest in your team and you really start to you have to find people that have strategic advantages that at least fill in your weaknesses, correct? Right. 
Yes, for sure. And you can hit, you hit the limit, especially on a direct to consumer business on what you can bootstrap because you, customer acquisition cost is very expensive. Mm -hmm. If you're doubling in revenue, you have to double your inventory and you have to pre buy that. So it's not a wholesale relationship where the retailer's buying it. So yeah, there's some limits on it, especially with footwear that's expensive to carry versus say like a sock. Um, so there's some limits to bootstrapping, but that mentality I would love as we continue to grow to, to keep that mentality in the company and have, um, have people that work with the company benefit from that. So there's a company, you know, like I know there's ways to set up businesses where everybody can share that works with it and the profitability of it. So everybody's willing to, to, um, to, you know, just make sure the, like if you know if you don't need to waste a piece of paper, don't waste a piece of paper. That kind of mentality, and then they, you know, they they benefit from it too. That would be wonderful to instill in a bigger company. What are you looking at in terms of your ninety day goals, and then let's say your ten or fifteen year goals? Yeah, you know, so we'll we'll make it a week goal because I like to do things fast. Awesome, love it. <laughs> We have right now we're in the middle of developing our fall collection and we have a spring photo shoot happening and we're trying to get ahead of this. The boots come screaming in from Spain the day before we need them. Um, So I work with uh, wonderful people that now help me with kind of line development and ordering that say, hey, we do this, use the calendar, here's when you have to do things in a year. And all these people come from like very strong footwear backgrounds. Um, and they've, you know, been doing it for decades. And so we're, we are, um, like literally in the next, you know, week or two weeks, we're working on fall samples. We're shooting spring, which we're going to launch like a couple weeks after. And, um, and so just pulling all of that off, plus my husband's retiring from the Marine Corps next Friday. Wow. You um, have a lot going on. We're um, in the middle of moving, moving from 29 Palms, California to San Angelo, Texas, too. Wow. Wow. Very interesting. Very interesting. Cool. And so what can we expect to see from Ranch Road Boots in the next, say, five years, 10 years? What, where would you like to see the business? I think we can be an 80 to $100 million a year business in that time frame. Um, not easily, but that's not like... that's. I, I don't feel like crazy when I'm saying that. Um, there's no reason why we can't. And people love to buy from our brand. And they like you know the transparency that we offer. And we're, I think, more interesting. Um, and I think we'll get... We'll, I know we'll continue to put out uh, great products and and appeal to this you know, millennial female shopper and continue to provide you know men's we we for sure want to continue to grow in men's um but our focus is uh, is uh, like what my focus is and what I believe the market will will take and how we're going about it and the people that I'm working with on a team I think we can be a really big footwear brand that's wonderful wonderful so if people want to check out your company, they can obviously go to ranchroadboots.com. How can people get in contact with you if they want to reach you directly? Email us, um, the support email address, and any personal messages to me go through that and get shuttled off to me too. Awesome. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. I think this was a really informative episode and I hope you've had fun. It was great to have you on the show and we look forward to all of the exciting things that Ranch Road Boots has in store for us in the next decade or so. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity.